Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and every week the team and I will be bringing you an exciting mix of discussion, interviews and stories. This week we discuss reshuffle rumours with Raphael Baer and George Eaton, NS bloggers Alan White and Kate Belgrave talk about their investigation into the Coalition's secret cuts, and Carolyn Crampton, Laurie Penny and I disagree about Jane Austen. I'm joined by our politics editor Raphael Baer and Georgia Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week's politics. First up, I think we have to catch up with Labour post um, Ed Miliband's speech this week. George, did it calm the nerves and soothe, you know, troubled times? It did. I think it was one of the uh, best days he's had, actually. And the, the Blair intervention meant that uh, you know, all of the Blairites who could potentially have come out and said he didn't go too far, or he's made this mistake, uh, were calmed, and that, that was, a, was, a, was a big boost. And it is a, a brave step. I mean, the more I think about it, the more radical it seems that it could lead. It, it is the biggest transformation in the party's relationship with the union since it was founded. Um, and, it, and it could mean the loss of millions in funding. And that, that sounds uh, very negative. Uh, the gain for Miliband is that he has won the right now to frame the Tories as the party of big money to say, look, this is my offer of funding reform. What's yours? Uh, and if the Tories don't play ball on that, then he'll be able to hammer them relentlessly between now and the election as, as a party in hock to vested interests. And practically, we've been talking about him losing five million of the eight million of union funding. What's the plan to make up for that money? I mean, the Labour Party's already far more in debt than the other yeah. parties put together, right? Well, I heard today that Miliband uh, spoke at Party HQ yesterday and told them that there would be uh, job losses as a result. So one answer is the Labour Party will simply have less money to spend. Um, and another possibility is that the unions are still going to have, uh, aren't actually going to lose money. They'll just be giving less directly in affiliation fees to Labour. So uh, the remainder will go into their political fund, which is what they use for large one-off donations to Labour at the time of elections to pay for sort of big billboard posters mm-hmm. and things. They could make up the shortfall through that. But it would look um, quite cynical for Miliband to basically still receive these large donations from the union bosses, having said he wants to end that. 
which is why he really needs to get a deal on party funding. His best hope of doing that is to pick up the phone to Nick Clegg and say, look, let's talk and can you please sort of push the Tories on this and force them to come to the table. And Raf, how are Lib Lab relations at the moment? Is that Will Nick Clegg take that phone call? Will he be happy to take that phone call? Well, Nick Clegg's always, always happy in theory to talk about things that can be presented as you know, obvious areas for cross-party cooperation um, and party funding uh, is very much one of them. Um, uh, certainly, lib, more generally, Lib Lab relations are, are much better than they were sort of two years ago. The, the, sort of Labour, the Labour Party had a massive tantrum, obviously, when the Lib Dems went into coalition with the Tories because it was felt like a sort of betrayal of a, a, a progressive family. Uh, they're kind of over that. Uh, then there was a period where Labour thought, actually, you know what, this, this coalition is so useless, we're going to win a majority, we're going to win the election, and Libs, you're completely irrelevant, and possibly Nick Clegg's head will be kind of taken off and kicked around as a football behind um, Labour HQ after 2015. So um, they then went into sort of overconfident mode. Now that's now road back, but they realised how hard it's going to be. Everyone's thinking, crikey, there's probably going to be a hung parliament. Um, and so for the first time in a long time, I mean, actually I was at a, a, a drinks reception in the Deputy Prime Minister's office last night, and all the Lib Dem top brass were there. And they're all feeling quite confident. They know what their strategic position is. They think they're the ones holding the centre. Um, and the only problem is they're still on sort of 10, 11 points in the poll. So they say, you know, it's fine. We know what we're doing. Uh, this seems to be working out quite well. We just now need a few more people to say they'll vote for us. Uh, yeah, so they're not naive about the situation. So from that point of view, uh, Clegg is, he's sort of, they're cultivating careful equidistance now. But Lib Dems have been fairly stable, haven't they? I mean, you don't get the sort of same backbench Lib Dem tantrums that you've had from both sides, from Labour and Tories in the last year. Well, what the Lib Dem sort of strategists say, their explanation for that is this famous expression of sort of the hands dipped in blood, that because they all went together into the coalition and Clegg sort of took the coalition agreement and said, I need everyone to sign up for this, they are all signed up to it. Um, also, crucially... Just being in government is a win for the Lib Dems in a way that it isn't for Labour or the Tories. And this is a very important point, actually, that the Tories are, are starting to feel more confident at the moment because Labour have had a difficult few weeks. Um, and they, they're starting to say, you know, we can actually win this. But by win, what they really mean is get to where they are now, which in 2010 felt like losing. So they've sort of having to sort of redefine their definition of winning um, to something that they thought was losing that actually probably involves doing another deal with the Lib Dems. And how on earth are they going to do that? So that's sort of the only people who, for whom the likeliest outcome of the next election would feel like a good result is the Lib Dems. Um, and when we're talking about party funding, you interviewed Stuart Wheeler, who has donated millions of pounds to UKIP after previously having donated millions of pounds to the Tories. Is that right? Has he donated millions to UKIP? I, mean, I, wouldn't, to use, I wouldn't throw around the word millions. I, I, lots of money, yeah. I think, would probably... I, I, don't, I haven't seen the accounts recently. So. <laughs> has anyone? Um, but how, how big is the UKIP machine? How much is it a party and how much is it just Nigel Farage being on breakfast telly? Well, one of the interesting things that that Stuart Wheeler said to me was that they are obviously quite worried that um, it is a bit too much, just Nigel Farage going on telly a lot. Um, and then his the force of his personality uh, persuading lots of disillusioned voters that they want to vote for UKIP 
um, some of them being ex-councillors and people who have some experience of politics to bring to the party, uh, literally and metaphorically, and and some of them just being nutters who are actually a liability and will say stupid racist things and then get them into trouble. Um, and so there is a, there are, I've got a strong sense from from Stuart Wheeler that they really need now to start turning into a proper political organisation. Uh, they've got they've hired some policy people or one policy person in particular. Um, they're trying to you know, get um, Farage to do a bit less media, a bit more being a leader and organising stuff um and because they recognize that they the big one is the may next year the european parliamentary elections which people are saying ukip could win uh, and they might not but they'll certainly do very well um and what they need what the other parties are starting to say now is you've now had people if they voted ukip as a protest vote once or twice in a local council poll once or twice in a european poll few people three percent voted ukip in the general election You've, you've now got UKIP voters. They're not protest voters, they're UKIP voters. Um, and the lesson from Scotland and the SNP is once you've got people doing that two or three times, they stick. Um, and that's something that alarms the other parties and gives UKIP some confidence that if they get their organisation together, they could become a proper political party. My sense is they're not actually that yet. And George, to go back to Labour and talk about this idea of the machine, obviously the, one of the things that really brought Ed Miliband to crisis point was the resignation of Tom Watson as election coordinator. Do you get a sense of who's going to take over that role and, and fulfil that brief for him? There's several names in the mix. One is Douglas Alexander, who ran the party's campaign in 2010 and who Watson said this week um, he would uh, back for the position and... Uh, He's admired for his intellect. Which took a big sting out there, right? Because there were sort of vague, dark whisperings that uh, Tom Watson and Len McCluskey had conspired to try and yeah. get uh, actually get rid of uh, Douglas Alexander's seat in the, in the boundary chain. Can I just right? point out that lawyers have been all across this allegation in the last week, so this is very much something that has been said, but not... Um, not in any way confirmed or Not in any way confirmed or proven, though. So, but, but then quite significant that Tom Watson is, would back yes. Douglas Alexander. Yeah, I mean, that was really sort of an act of detoxification in some ways and 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 wise one and the other names that have been mentioned are michael dugger who is currently vice chairs uh an ally of of watson and is close to him and would would sort of be quite a good like for like replacement um one radical proposal that uh, a labor figure mentioned to me yesterday is that they could merge the roles of policy coordinator which is currently held by john crudders and election coordinator and so crudders would do both and the view is that you can't do um, politics without policy and you can't separate decision-making and campaigning and you need a fusion between the two. Uh, and Carlos, as well as being sort of quite cerebral and quite wonkish, is also a street fighter, someone who's you know, led the campaigning against the, the far right and BNP in, in, in Dagenham. Mm. And so I think that is, that's another idea. I, I don't think it's the most likely one, but it is, a, it is an option that's being discussed. It concentrates a lot of power in one person's hand yeah. in the party machine, I guess, is the... Is the feeling against it? Yeah, I th- I'm my own gut. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
feeling is that would not be a great idea for the simple reason that um, inevitably, although no one likes to admit it, you have to say and do things in a political campaign that don't automatically say with you what your long-term policy thinking is. I mean, a classic example is you know, Labour will obviously campaign on health and a kind of the Tories are wrecking the NHS every time someone sneezes in an A&E ward. It's like those filthy Tories. They're destroying the NHS. Practical policy making on health is going to end up acquiescing actually to a lot of what the Tories are doing or have done or at least accepting it's face complete and thinking um, some quite difficult, unthinkable things. Um, and you, you, for that reason, you, you need one person thinking about health policy, one person running around um, shroud waving and kicking the stories about how much they've duffed up the health service. Well, we should return to that another week. But for now, thank you, George and Rath. the New Statesman's web editor and I'm here with two of our regular writers for online Alan White and Kate Belgrave and they've been writing a, a series for us called The Secret Cuts which they're going to explain a little bit more about and how it's been working so Alan tell us why why The Secret Cuts? Uh, well Kate and I have been looking at um, cuts across local and national government and we found a sort of common thread across all of them uh, which is that the majority of the population know very little about why they're happening or indeed the fact that they are happening. Um, we started in um, Barnet, a uh, local council, um, and we were looking at cuts to social care there. Um, we realised that um, while it was causing quite a lot of uh, noise within the borough itself, it was receiving very little coverage in the mainstream media and it was severely impacting people's lives. Um, there were two real reasons for that. Um, one was a lack of uh, reporting diligence among national mm. newsrooms. And the other thing was the way that the cuts were being carried out. It was done via outsourcing, which, um, well, for a start, local government cuts are very hard to track anyway. Um, Kate, with her work on the False Economy blog, has been doing more than I think it's fair to say any national news organisation has been doing in that regard. Um, and um, uh, the way that the cuts are being done was through outsourcing, which is a particularly shadowy and shady way of uh, hacking away at jobs. Um, generally, such deals are protected by... Um, commercial confidentiality laws it's very hard to use things like the freedom of information act to uh, find out what's uh, what's going on um so we did that story and that led us on to look at um a, a number of other issues and uh, ways in which uh, government local or national were were disguising them mm-hmm. so kate given that these things are secret and shadowy how do you go about finding out what's actually happened um, well, for me, it's really, I've been doing this for a long time because I came from a trading background, so I had a lot of um, branch contacts. I was in a branch until I was thrown out, and then that was Unison. But it meant that I had a lot of, um, just a lot of contacts of people who you know, care working and that sort of thing. Um, so I had been blogging about that for a long time, and then the change of government came because a lot of these issues were actually well underway before then privatisation, outsourcing, that sort of thing, and then people with low wages having those wages cut further. 
Um, and when the change of government came in, the first area really that was hit was local government. Mm -hmm. They had to take any cuts. So it's a combination of things, going to protests, um, ringing around, talking to people, having a lot of contacts, just getting out there, getting off, I have to say, much as I love it, getting off social media a lot <laughs> and heading out and just, yeah, just making contact with people in the, that way and getting to know people because a lot of the people I interview I go back to mm. and that happened really. Our second part that we did, which was on the Independent Living Fund, which is an extraordinary cut from government because this is a fund that's used by people with very severe disabilities um, to pay for extra care hours and, you know, people can work and they can go to study and all the rest of it. They just need that physical support. They're cutting that. Mm. And so when that's cut, those people will either have to be, you know, they're taken up to rest homes, I mean, or they're left at home. I think Penny said something about you've got a choice between neglect at home or abuse in a rest home, you know. <laughs> this is sort of... It's not really a choice, is it? No. Um, <laughs> so it's that continuum. We'll go back and see those people again in sort of six months because I think the other issue that we have is that people report on something once and that's kind of the end of it because the agenda mm. shifts. But by sticking to social care and you know welfare reform, social security reform, you build up those relationships. You mentioned mm. um, social media there, and I think anyone who uses Twitter or Facebook yeah. is aware that this is something that there is a significant group of people talking about. Yeah, yeah. But you say it's actually more useful to get off there. And go I think as people. a journalist, mm. you have to just be very careful that you're extending your reach outside because you talk to a lot of people who, for a whole range of reasons, are not. On social media mm. or um, online and you know there, there are economic reasons for that there are also just some people not into it I mean I've got people in my own family who are just not really there you know mm. <laughs> yeah um, so you have to make sure that you do extend your reach beyond social media and you can get very sort of locked into the debates that are happening there when there are debates happening elsewhere mm. as well I mean a lot of people we talked to for the bedroom tax um, article weren't even online yeah Sometimes personal choice, sometimes economics. Yeah. And actually tells you something about the bedroom tax, the age of a lot of those people, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of those people are just on the cusp of retirement, yeah. but but aren't retired. And, um, mm. you know, over the road from them could be some pensioners who are not subject to it. And so, you know, one of the things that we picked up on, I guess, was how divisive it is. In that way, yeah. Mm. So the common thread through all these different cuts you've been looking at is that they are secret them in the series um why are they secret is there one sort of overarching agenda behind this or is it different well, reasons? I, I suppose um looking at two of them it, it's about the sort of interface between local and national government i mean if you look at something like the ilf which i think is a despicable card um it's being sold as a reform it's being mm -hmm. sold that the central government money is being folded into local government money um, but then you look at the funding environment at this moment in time, and you say, "Well, really, are the same services going to be going to be provided? Are they are they really going to be there? And how are we going to find out? And the only way that we're going to know that those services are being provided at that level is is by you know people like me and Kate going around and talking mm -hmm. to people. That's the only way because there's no sort of central monitoring of anything, which was why I was so outraged last night." Um, uh, the collective will um, in, among parliamentarians not to uh, pursue a cumulative impact assessment for all of the, the benefit cuts that are being made. Um, and, 
you know, we were talking earlier about another piece we've done on, on PIP and sort of align with that. It's the, the personal independence it, payment. It is, yeah. yeah. And, and align with that, the work capability assessment. Now, scores of MPs from, you know, Tories to far left Labour to all sorts of people in the middle have come to Parliament, have talked about the damage it's doing to people in their constituencies. There's there's a common consensus that it, it needs severe reform and, and I think if you held a gun to the head of a, a huge number of parliamentarians they'd say it needs to be scrapped. But um, there's an awareness that if they scrap it it's going to cost a lot more than if they just keep trying to bolt on various little improvements that may or may not work. Um, and uh, I mean I think you see a similar thing with the bedroom tax. Um, last night, Liam Byrne provided, actually, by his standards, a pretty devastating analysis of all the stuff that's wrong with it, and then promptly said, well, I'm not going to cut it, because I can't pledge, you know, £100 million or whatever spending. Mm. Um, so there's a sort of, not just at the local level that there's a problem, but actually at the national level, there's a, there's a real kind of conspiracy of silence over some of these things and, and over the impacts that they're having, I believe. And I think it can feel both for people who this is happening to, mm. but also to people reading about it, reading what you guys have been finding out, that there's a sense that this is the only way, that there is no oh, alternative. Oh, yeah, and I think that's what you have to... Because the other reason I think things are sort of so-called secret is because the agenda is not one that people want to touch on. There's a wider context here, and that is austerity mm. and a shift of the exchequer to the private sector. That's what this is all about. So it's about lining the pockets of Atos, it's lining the pockets of Capita, and Capita are about to run Barnet Council. There's absolutely no reason why they should. There's no justification. There's a great deal of work that's been done to deconstruct their arguments and their costings and so on and so forth. Mm. Business plans I've seen there, I've seen better things, you know, really on the back of a fag packet. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I mean, it's just appalling that people can do that. And as we say, the story we, we did there, the whole notion in the first instance with this outsourced care company was going to make millions. And as John Sullivan, who we interviewed, one of the parents said, yeah, this is all mental masturbation. <laughs> he said, it's just rubbish. And they turn up a year later saying, we haven't made a penny. In fact, we're in loss. So all we can do here is cut salaries. But the notion is to prepare that, that company for a sort of final privatisation. So that's that's the bigger agenda and people don't want to touch on that because what you're doing dealing with there in the NHS is the same thing. Massive contracts mm. to huge companies which are extraordinarily powerful. And, and long really, contracts as well. Oh, long not, contracts. Yeah. Circo, Capita, Virgin, these sort of places. 
they run the world. Mm. And, you know, I think it was Marina Hyde actually did an article and she talked about, you know, how Murdoch sort of saw a change of government, just sort of this shift in junior personnel, you know, and I think these private companies see that as well. Labour, Tories, da 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 not even particularly relevant. Capita gets those contracts, they've gone for years, Labour comes in, what difference does it make in that sense? So I think there are a lot of people who have an investment in keeping that information fairly quiet. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there, guys. Thanks very much for coming in, Alan and Kate. And you can read what they've been reporting on newstatesman.com if you search for secret cuts, and we hope there'll be more to follow. I'm joined by our contributing editor, Laurie Penny, and the web editor, uh, Caroline Crampton, for a new section I like to call Lovely Ladies Talk About Literature. <laughs> Hopefully we'll, um, we'll have plenty more in the future. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Jane Austen, because Laurie, you don't like Jane Austen. Well, it's not that I don't like Jane Austen, I think I don't understand Jane Austen, because having been obliged to study her books at university and a little bit at school, I really don't get what it is that's so exciting about it and I sort of slightly resent as well the the way it's dominated um kind of what women are angled into studying in literary terms but that that's what it felt like to me at university anyway on the pro Austen camp Caroline why do you (laughs) like Jane Austen I think I like it because very little happens Mm -hmm. and and yet so much happens if you're on a sort of graph with a scale, if you're setting the bar so low as all people do is go and have tea with each other and occasionally yeah. go to a dance, um, and then some someone says something to someone unexpectedly, it feels like the earth has split open and demons have come out of hell, you know. And I, I like that kind of amplified feeling of like social mores so closely unpicked. I think the problem is, I've been thinking about this since mm. we had this argument, because this all came back about the idea that we were going to have Jane Austen was going to be the sort of approved woman to be on yep. banknotes, right? Out of any you know British woman of the last however long. Mm-hmm. Really, my love of Jane Austen is actually only a love of Pride and Prejudice. Persuasion is a bit dull. I'm just going to put this out there. Mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility, that younger one, just like you know, I'm going to say Kate Winslet's character, which makes <laughs> me feel really bad. Marianne, she's good. Yes. Um, makes me feel bad. Uh, Emma is slightly ruined by the thought of. Gwyneth Paltrow was Emma, but again, maybe this is actually more a problem about the fact that film versions of this are generally so Jekyll. many film Don't versions. Even talk to me about Kira Knightley but as lo- ruining love, my favourite character Clueless, literally with you her face. Clueless, and that's that's also Emma. I do love Clueless. I really is love it? Clueless. No, yeah, which is how she would tries I not to, work that out? She sets up all her friends with guys, but she can't find someone for herself. But the right person for her is right there, and she's just discarded them as being too kind of daggy. Uh, that's oh. not the language that Jane Austen uses, <laughs> obviously, that's me paraphrasing. Um, so basically, so many people I really respect and whose taste in books I really respect like Jane Austen that I feel I must have missed something. Do you like Bridget Jones' Diary? I, I wouldn't say I like it, but I can definitely quote bits to you. Because that's Pride important. and Prejudice. Yeah. So, you know, there is that... You know, that idea of that there's one guy who's very attractive and you know dashing and then you, you have to see past that to the real merits of somebody else mm-hmm. is i think that's a, that's a phenomenal story also uh, for me actually although i love lizzie bennett mr bennett is my favorite character yes, in pride and prejudice so yep. he says amazing things like you know if either, after lizzie comes in and tells him that she's going to get married and jane's obviously just got married he says you know if any young gentlemen come calling for for mary or kitty tell them i'm quite at leisure <laughs> and i really love that and it's one of the few lines of literature that but um, I'm interested, Laurie, because are there other women writers of that period that you, you do like? 
Um, I have. I know. I know it's a bit later, but I'm. I'm always into the Brontes, and um, I. Uh, somebody. I think basically somebody told me once as about a fourteen-year-old that you could either like the Brontes or Jane Austen. I think that's a Beatles Rolling Stones thing, right? Mm. Yeah. It's like the wild, anarchic, kind of slightly crazy versus the sort of slightly bourgeois kind of you know <laughs> aspirational kind of. So you say? Are you saying that the Brontes are the Rolling Stones? Yeah. And they said, "Oh no." Why is no, that but bad? I'm a Beatles girl. Well, you see, that's, you're, you're messing up my whole worldview here. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Caroline, what about you? Oh, I don't know. I really like both. I know that's, you've just said mm. I'm not allowed to. But I, I like the kind of, as I said, the kind of storm in a teacup, Jane Austen type thing. But then, I mean, who doesn't love the kind of torrid romance of things mm-hmm. like um, Wuthering Heights and uh, oh, what's the one where is it you're not going to say Villette are you yes I was thinking <laughs> Villette which, which I absolutely adore because that's that's a book where she wrote she wrote an ending where the uh, the protagonist you know the hero he sails away mm-hmm. and then he, he dies he's, he's, he's supposed to go and make his fortune and his ship sinks and he doesn't come back and uh, she was told spoiler by alert her, she, well no she was told by her publisher that that, uh, that was too sad and could she please write a happier ending that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so these days you get in a, you can most uh, sort of just you know Wordsworth classics editions where you, mm-hmm. you buy will have both endings in. You'll read one it's and so then wonderful. there'll be an appendix with the other one. What I really feel about the Brontes is that they what comes across in their books is this deep longing for something to happen because mm-hmm. really nothing happened in their lives apart from grim alcoholism and death. That was it, and they never really travel. I mean, Charlotte went to Belgium once, and that's it. Mm. It's um and. I think what comes across for me in Austin is a, a satisfaction with the way things are, and the only way you can escape is men. But in it's a slightly more hopeful vision, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because yeah. essentially, I mean, there's been recent revisionist studies about the idea that there is no way that somebody of um, Lizzie Bennet's class and income level would ever have, you know, that would have been seen like as basically yeah. marrying the servant girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she would. That she would not really have gotten the same room as him. Yeah. yeah. So it is a good yeah. kind of borderline sort of Cinderella fantasy. But mm-hmm. I think you would really like um, my favourite early female English writer is Afra Ben, oh. who was who wrote um, various plays and wrote a, a novel as well. And she was uh, she came over from um, Holland. She was supposedly a spy as well, uh, and she was accused of being a prostitute as well. There's mm-hmm. a bit where she said, "I hang out the sign of Angelica," and this was this idea about whether or not mm-hmm. this was a sort of sign of it being um, a brothel. Um, so one thing I really hate about the history of women's literature is that there's this marking point in Victorian times where everything goes a bit staid and because we've celebrated, I mean I don't get on at all with George Eliot, um, and because we celebrated that so much then you can forget that the, those early 18th century writers like Eliza Haywood, complete, who were, mm. you know, slightly and and really often really grimly depressing mm. There's um I think Mary Hayes is it who's got a memoirs of Emma Courtney is just a phenomenally depressing book. Um, the work of, of Mary um, Godwin, yeah. Shelley, I can't get the number right, Morstancroft, Godwin, yeah. and then yeah, yeah that, I get the surname is all right. Because Mary, that's deeply depressing. Unremittingly um, grim. But I think that's why actually we probably ended up with Austen being so lionised because yeah. a lot of women from that period wrote books that were ultimately realistic and therefore depressing. Yes. I think it all went wrong when female authors stopped taking the piss out of clergymen. Um, <laughs> because uh, Jane Austen's clergymen are always ridiculous. Mr Collins is maybe Mr. my Collins, second. Yeah. Yeah. After Mr Bennet, um, he's maybe my favourite. And, and, but then once you get further on into the kind of Victorian era, you get George Eliot who just writes about clergymen as if they're, they're the best great. thing you've ever heard of. But I yeah. bet you're a Christina Rossetti fan, Laurie. A little bit, a little bit. 
You know, you can't see on the you can't see on the tape, but um, Helen's giving you this terrible look. Well, I think <laughs> your whole outfit today is look a little bit kind of goblin. A little, fair, bit, kind a little of. bit goblin. But I may have done a series of GCSE artworks based on Goblin Market. Goblin Market. That was coin. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, in that case, on that bombshell. Oh no, I sound like Top Gear. Uh, thank you very much to Laurie and Caroline. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Bear, Kate Belgrave, Caroline Crampton, George Eaton, Laurie Penny and Alan White. It was produced by Caroline Crampton, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week and you can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Listener.